Fab Lab Podcast, Christmas edition. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Aaron Crowley. I'm so glad that you tuned in for this special edition of the Fab Lab Podcast. This episode's called Christmas in the Trenches. Now, if you listen to the 4th of July episode and you listen to the Thanksgiving episode, you'll know that we diverge from the normal discussion about the business side of stone fabrication to touch on some historical events that connected to those holidays. Well, I want to continue that tradition today. Christmas is by far and away my favorite holiday of the year, although today's episode, the historical event doesn't necessarily connect directly to Christmas. It doesn't have a Christmas theme, but the fact that it's the Christmas season and there happens to be a movie in theaters right now that jogged my memory, I thought I could make the connection, although it's a loose one. But it is still a historical event and it is still absolutely relevant. And quite frankly, it's one that I'm really passionate about. It is a fantastic story, a fantastic character. The hero of the movie is an amazing individual and we're going to learn something from it. I think you'll be entertained. I think you'll be inspired. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So let's talk about the who, the what, the when, the where of this historical account. Now, the who is Winston Churchill. Of course, you're probably familiar with that name. He was prime minister during World War II. He led England and really the entire free world. He rallied the English-speaking people of the world to rise up and defeat the Nazis in Germany, uh, the fascists in Italy, and the Japanese. And, and basically retained freedom for the rest of the world. But the account we're going to look at today takes place during a different world war, uh, World War One. Winston Churchill was Lord of the Admiralty, which was basically uh, the, the person in charge of the British Navy during World War One. That's the who. The what is the Dardanelle campaign. And we're going to get into that in more detail here in just a minute. But it was a, a battle, a famous battle. Unfortunately, it was famous because it was a catastrophic defeat from which Churchill got the blame. The when, well, I've already mentioned that, is World War I, but more specifically, it was 1915, about a year, year and a half after World War I started, and the where. Now, I mentioned the what was this campaign of the Dardanelles, Dardanelles Straits, but the, the specific geography, the where, well, our story begins in this body of water inside of Turkey that really separated the Mediterranean Sea and the Black Sea just south of Russia. From there, our story moves to Eastern Europe on the Western Front, where the trench warfare really took place between France and Germany. And from there, it moves back to England, that little isle northwest of France. So the battle for the Dardanelles, the campaign for the Dardanelles, let's set the stage here. So World War I has been underway for about a year. You've got France and England on the Western Front. You've got Germany on the Eastern Front. Now, if you've seen the movie Legends of the Fall, I think that was like a mid-90s with Brad Pitt, or more recently the movie 1917, which is currently in theaters, follows two soldiers during the trench warfare of World War I. Th that's the scene. That's the stage. Just absolutely horrific, treacherous conditions where lives, just tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives were wasted with, without any real impact strategically or operationally on the outcome of the war. It was just this ongoing just death and destruction, just throwing men into battle, throwing men into the hail of gunfire and bullets and whatnot without any prospect of really decisively ending the war. So that's what we pick up. That's the stage. That's the circumstances that kind of gives you a backdrop to the decisions that were made that really lead to the story that we're going to look at today, as well as our main character, Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill was Lord of the Admiralty, 
which meant he was in charge of the British Navy, which seems like an odd character to be playing when you've got battles going on on land, hundreds if not thousands of miles from the sea. But he becomes a very key player in this story, this campaign for the Dardanelles. So in in British politics, in, in British Parliament, the prime minister does not basically prosecute the war, unlike an American president who is commander-in-chief. The prime minister is somewhat detached from prosecuting a war. And so there was a gentleman named Lord Kitchener. He was Secretary of State of War, the guy in charge of the War Cabinet, of which Winston Churchill was a part of as Lord of the Admiralty in charge of the British Navy. Now, this story begins with a comment or a vague reference by Lord Kitchener to making a demonstration towards Russia, who in a sense was an ally of France and England, but not really necessarily that involved in the war as of yet. They wanted to get them into the war. They wanted them to open up a second front on the eastern side of Germany so that Germany would basically have to fight a two-front war, but they really hadn't entered the war yet. So Lord Kitchener makes this veiled reference. We should make a demonstration towards Russia in a sense to, to imply something. Well, Churchill, as Lord of the Admiralty, who is a major innovator, this guy was always thinking outside the box. This guy had a history of pushing the people above him, beside him, below him, into action, innovating, always pressing, you know, always pressing the envelope. That's all he needs to hear. Now, being Lord of the Admiralty, being in charge of the British Navy, anything related to the sea or the ocean was basically under his purview. And so he connects the dots and he starts developing this plan, this campaign for the Dardanelles, which had it worked, could have ended the war, you know, two and a half years earlier. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. And so to give you a little bit of perspective here, this, this Dardanelle Strait, this body water, this thin strip of water that separated the Mediterranean Sea from the Sea of Maramar inside of Turkey, which then was separated by another strait by Gibraltar that then opened up into the Black Sea. If you can imagine this, if you look at a map, this will make perfect sense, but if you can imagine an hourglass that's inverted, you know, an hourglass has two big bulbs on, on either side with a thin strip in the middle, and that's what the sand flows through. Well, this geography was in a sense the opposite of that. You had two little thin strips on the outside with a big bulge in the middle. The Dardanelles on the west, Istanbul on the east. Winston Churchill's plan was to sail a bunch of British gunships up into that sea, bombard Turkey on both sides and at both ends, defeat the Turks, drive them in Germany out of that area, and open up a seaway from the Mediterranean Sea into the Black Sea, connecting Europe and Russia. Now, the advantage to that was, was multiple. For one thing, Russia had moved about 350,000 tons of grain down onto the southern Russian coast of the Black Sea that could have been then sailed up to the troops on the Western Front. Conversely, that would have allowed all kinds of European armaments and naval capacity to sail east into the Black Sea so that they could supply the Russian troops with armaments and what they needed to open up a second front on the east side of Germany. So that would have forced Germany into fighting a two-front war, which would most likely have ended the war a year, two years, two and a half years earlier. <laughs> the problem was... The British intelligence did not show how well fortified the Turkish army was. Germany had actually amassed many, many troops and all kinds of armaments, and they were basically waiting. So here's what happens. They, they, they set off the campaign. These British gunboats sail up into that thin little strip of land there 
the Straits of Dardanelles, and they start taking heavy fire, and they start taking casualties, and some of their ships were sunk. And here's where things get dicey, because Churchill was Lord of the Admiralty. It had his stamp of approval. He helped to devise the strategy. But the the captains of these ships, the people down there on the ground, or actually in this case on the water, they began to pull back. There was some confusion. Instead of pressing on, Churchill wanted them to just blast their way through. They hesitated. Those captains were worried about their careers, and so they began to, in a sense, hedge their bets. They second-guessed. They paused. That pause invited even more attack from the Turks and the Germans. And the consequence of this was that this naval bombardment that was supposed to happen didn't happen with its full effect. And, and more concerningly was that British troops were supposed to follow and land on the shores of Turkey and then advance east along the, the sea basically cleaning up, get to Istanbul, defeat Istanbul, the Turks would have fallen and they would have controlled that entire that entire passageway. Well, the exact opposite happened. When the British fleet was stopped, all of that bombardment stopped. The problem was the plan didn't stop and the troops were still delivered to the shores. And so the troops that landed on the shore, they were soundly defeated after they were wiped out. So he, this, this campaign for Dardanelles, the Dardanelles Straits, turns into this epic, absolute catastrophe this this military disaster that had churchill's name on it and unfortunately for churchill the man he reported to and the folks that reported to him all chose to turn on him and point the finger of blame at him and he became the scapegoat this was a very public and humiliating defeat of which he took almost all of the blame now here's what's interesting with, with history now, 2020 vision, we can look back on this, and with the subsequent writings that Churchill did many, 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 many years after this, it has been determined that Churchill had all kinds of information that, in a sense, could have exonerated him, or at least put some of the blame on the folks in charge of him and the folks that reported to him. He, 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 he didn't have to suffer in silence as the main scapegoat for this event. He could have publicly defended his name. He could have stood up for himself. But that would have become a distraction. That would have that would have taken away from the war effort. And Churchill loved England. He loved freedom. He loved liberty. And nothing was more important than England winning this war. And so instead of waging this campaign to defend his name, defend his honor, he accepts his firing. But what he does with that is what is so shocking, what is so surprising, is what he does with that. It's in a sense what he doesn't do. Most men might have skulked back to England and, uh, you know, tried to find solace in some other pursuit. Not Churchill. He, he does the exact opposite of what you would expect somebody in that high-ranking position to do. So what does he do? Well, before I tell you what he does... Which, which is just absolutely fascinating. I want to give you a little bit more background about his combat experience. He was in the cavalry in the late 1800s. He actually fought in combat, armed combat, when English cavalry was still going into battle on horseback. He fought in Sudan. After that Sudan campaign where he was actually wounded... He went to South Africa during the Boer War, and uh, he went there as a war correspondent, as a writer, to report on the war, wound up in the thick of battle, taking up arms, defending soldiers as a supposed uh, a war correspondent, is captured during battle. Things don't look good. He escapes miraculously and somehow makes his way out of there, takes a train north through Africa, winds up back in England, a hero, having escaped. The, the guy loved combat. The guy loved adventure. The guy was absolutely 
fearless and he was always looking for a conflict. So does Churchill leave the Admiralty and go back to England to plot his political return? Uh, No. What does he do? He requests a position as a colonel on the front. That's right. He, he requests to be placed with a company of soldiers on the Western Front in the trenches, on the front lines of the battle. He actually gets a commission. He becomes an infantry officer, a lieutenant colonel, winds up in the trenches on the front lines. Now, this is so fascinating. There are multiple accounts of near-death experiences. Now, many men, had they, you know, had they requested that kind of a position, might have requested a position that allowed them to, in a sense, move the pieces on the chessboard far from the danger, not Churchill. He goes directly to the front, and on numerous occasions, he had near-death experiences where he would leave his post for some other activity, and a bomb would drop right where he had been standing 15 minutes before. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. Churchill goes to the front. He leads his men from the front, not from behind, and that is such an amazing testimony to his unique, one-of-a-kind character. He suffers this massively public and humiliating defeat as Lord of the Admiralty, and then he takes a company of men to the front lines and goes to war, goes into battle. From there, he goes back into politics. He spends his time serves his time on the front, and then does actually wind up back in English politics, back in England after the war. Now, here's something else that is so interesting. This third, I guess that you'd call it the third point that I find so fascinating about his character. Churchill absolutely believed in his destiny to be great. He absolutely never wavered in his belief that he was destined for greatness and to do great things. For the crown. And so his perseverance, his commitment to that expectation just never, ever wavered. And that is such a testimony to somebody who then spent 10, 20 years, the highs and the lows of British politics, in power, out of power, major victories, major defeats, before eventually becoming prime minister at the absolutely most crucial time in world history to lead England, to, re- to, to lead the free world into victory during World War II. Now, I've, I've got this picture, this poster of Winston Churchill in my office, and it's got one of my favorite all-time quotes. I don't even have to look at it to recount it to you. It says, and it's a quote by Winston Churchill, success is the ability to move from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. Success is the ability to move from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. He could make a statement like that because that typified 40 years of public life, always pursuing the absolute pinnacle of power, always believing that he was destined for greatness, always always putting himself out there on a limb in the service of his country and into the belief of what he was capable of. And I just, I love that testimony. I love that picture. I love his character. I love his perseverance in how he just not only believed, but he acted. He took huge risks, political risks, military risks, risks to his own life and well-being. And he was a married father during that time. Absolute fantastic individual, icon of world history, 
who actually fulfilled his own expectations. He absolutely ended up doing what he always believed he would do, and that was to lead the free world in a great cause. And so, ladies and gentlemen, friends, followers, fans of the Fab Lab podcast, if you're still listening to this, I am so grateful that you you took the time to hear me stumble through this recounting of one of my most favorite historical events, such an inspiring account of a man, a character who never ever gave up, who who kept at it until ultimate victory was achieved for himself and for the people that he led. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I am re-inspired. I love this story. I'm jacked up. I'm excited. I didn't want this to be about running a business. But you know, you can't help it. You can't escape. You can't you can't avoid the fact that these principles, this man's example, um, really does have relevance today, whether you're leading a stone shop or whether you're leading a family or leading something else. Boy, if you can learn something from Winston Churchill, you have the prospect and the potential of also being a great leader. So ladies and gentlemen, Merry Christmas. I hope you have a fantastic break, some time off with your friends and your family, and I look forward to joining you again on the next episode of the Fab Lab Podcast. Until then, happy fabricating.